All right. We're doing good. I can talk and I didn't trip coming up here today. So starting well this morning. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Last Sunday I mentioned from the text that the result of the gospel, the result of gospel preaching is joy. It brought the city of Samaria much joy when Philip came to preach. And it's true. The message of the gospel, forgiveness of our sin through Jesus Christ brings joy. Every word of God accomplishes every purpose of God that he intends for it. And what he intends is for his name and his glory and salvation to go to the ends of the earth. And he often uses ordinary people like Philip to reach people on ordinary days. And so the encouragement in the weeks past was don't, don't overlook the normal everyday life that you're experiencing. God uses everyday people in those everyday moments. We've seen throughout the book of Acts so far that the church is in its, in its first fruits. Like it's, it's just being born, if you will. And it's born there in Jerusalem, but it won't stay there. It, it can't stay there. God gave this early church some incredible blessings. Right, if you think back to Acts chapter 2 verse 42, it starts giving this list of the things that the church was doing. It talks about incredible fellowship. God gave that early church fellowship like they'd never experienced in the body of Christ before. He gave them resources and generous hearts to meet every need that came about in their growing group. And he gave them passionate and spirit-filled leaders to train them to teach them, to preach to them the ways of Christ. And God gave all those incredible blessings to his people in the church in Jerusalem, but he never intended for the gospel message to stay there. And you can see through the persecution, through the death of Stephen, God began to send that message out. One of the first stops we are told about is Samaria with uh, Philip. And I mentioned last week, you remember the, the parable of the Good Samaritan? Um, it was a surprise that Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story because Samaritans were not looked highly upon by the Jews. And so it's worth keeping that in mind as we continue in Acts and as we specifically read the account of Simon this morning, which is the only mention of him in Scripture, is in these verses. It's good to be reminded of the kind of patterns that Luke is laying out as he's writing the book of Acts. So one in particular that I want to mention is just the fact that he uses a lot of comparison, uh, contrasts and comparison. So remember, Luke uh, is a doctor. He's probably very technically um, detail-minded. And so he uses that in his writings. And you'll notice as we go that almost the beginning of almost every paragraph begins with the word and or now and things are just moving it's it's happening quickly and the narrative just keeps on going think back with me all the way back to the first chapter think back to some of the things he's compared and contrasted okay so in the first chapter Judas is gone and they're filling the spot. Matthias takes that spot. So there's a comparison there of Judas and Matthias. We find in the next couple of chapters, we find that there's a comparison between the lame beggar and his faith and a comparison between that and the faith of the religious council. 
We find later on a comparison between the heart and generosity of Barnabas and that of Ananias and Sapphira. We find a comparison in just the previous chapters with Stephen and his selfless sacrifice and compared that with Saul and his persecution of the church. And now it would seem in Acts 8, there's another comparison coming. And it's Simon and the Ethiopian eunuch that we'll talk about later on. Uh, You could also compare Simon with some of the other people there in Samaria. Our text for this morning, verses 9 through 25, they really just deal with this interesting account of Simon, who is considered a magician. Um, It talks about the account of the Samaritans being baptized. It talks about them receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit after Peter and John come from Jerusalem to them. Uh, This text covers an attempted bribe, and it covers a very, very pointed rebuke. And so there's a lot here. Uh, There's more, in fact, in this these, this text that I want to cover in one week. And so we're going to split up these verses. We're going to read them all this morning, but we're only really going to focus in on Simon today. Next week, my hope, Lord willing, is that we'll talk more about what it looks like uh, for those believers in Samaria to receive the Holy Spirit on the laying on of hands by the apostles. And then, Lord willing, the following week, we will finally get to talk about that uh, conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, his baptism, what happens with Philip in his sudden disappearance and appearance somewhere else, and cover those things. So that's kind of the, the layout that we've got here before us. There's obviously a link between all of those things in Luke's mind, because he writes about them together. And so I don't want to just like pull things out individually. We want to keep them in mind. And yet this morning, our focus is going to be on Simon specifically. So let's read Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. And then we'll pray because we need some wisdom as we walk through these verses this morning. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our desire as your people is to be right dividers of your word. We want to be approved workmen who are not ashamed, who, who rightly divide your word of truth. We want to rightly understand this for our own belief but also so that when we go and, and share the, the message of the joy of the gospel, that we're doing it well, that we're doing it accurately. And so we need some understanding this morning in these things, Lord. And maybe most of all what we need is what Peter challenged Simon with, Lord. We need hearts that are right before you. And so just as, as my brother prayed, this this may... This may lay us out this morning. And that would be a good thing if we, when we lay, are laid out, we look up and see the beauty of Jesus. And we put our faith fully in Him. And so, uh, by your Spirit, Lord, move in us and in our hearts today for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So we're in Samaria, the message of the gospel is going out, and we're introduced to this guy called Simon, who is described here by Luke as someone who's been practicing magic for a long time. We aren't told specifically what kind of magic he's participating in, but we know that whatever it was, it impressed the people of Samaria. It says that several times. In fact, in verse verse 9, He is somebody, it says, who called himself somebody great. So we can already see a little insight into who Simon was right there. But in verse 10, we also are told that everyone, from the young to the old, they all like look looked up to Simon. They called him the power of God, which is great. They revered him. They admired him. So they call him... The power of God. Now that's a term that they gave. And it's one that might not seem like that big a deal right off the bat. Until you remember, and maybe you might, this is a, this is a a name, a term that was given to Jesus himself by Paul in 1 Corinthians 124. Paul says it this way. He says, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so this is a messianic title that Simon maybe didn't give to himself, but he is okay with people referring to him as. So it would seem like Simon has a couple of problems going on. Uh, we could call them an anthropology problem that leads to a pride problem. Okay, now what I mean by anthropology problem is this. He has a wrong understanding of who he is as a person. Uh, in Paul's terms, he is thinking of himself more highly than he ought. And it's pretty clear 
And because he thought of himself as a person wrong, he thought uh, too highly of himself. So it led to, one led to the other. Verse 11, it says, They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Simon liked the glory. Simon wanted the attention He was calling himself great and was okay with other people doing the same. He liked it. And to some degree, he had some kind of power to back it up. Or else, why would people revere him? Why would people look up to him or give him their attention? Uh, It it could be a mixture of actual occult practices uh, mixed with illusion sleight of hand, something like that. There's debate on what exactly it is, but we know magicians in Egypt, back with Moses, they were able to copy the first couple of plagues, right? Some have conjectured that that too was a sleight of hand move, but uh, we see Balaam, before his donkey starts talking to him, he was wrapped up in some kind of occult sort of magic sort of thing. And so it could have been something like that. Again, it's not necessarily told to us if it's dark magic. But to be real fair, the Bible never really talks highly of magic at all in general. And there are other clues in the book of Acts that help us understand this better. If you want to peek forward to chapter 13, you can look there. There, There is another man described as a magician. In chapter 13, he's also described as a false prophet by Luke there. Uh, His name is Bar-Jesus, or another name is Elamis. I'll call him that. Um, And he's a Jew, if you can believe it. There, he is confronted by Paul, who's just then being referred to as Paul rather than Saul. And Paul has harsher words for Elamis than Peter does for Simon. Okay, this is what Paul says to Elamis in Acts 13, verse 10, a magician, mind you. He says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, there's no way to read that and read it as a compliment. There's nothing complimentary here. Okay, so Elamis is actively opposing the advancement of the gospel. Uh, If you look back to verse 8 of chapter 13, it says that he specifically was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. (coughs) Excuse me. So what what was going on there is they had this council of leaders had invited Paul to come in to speak about Jesus, and this guy, Elamis, is saying is trying to deter them and saying, no, you don't need to speak here. This guy's no good for you. Don't listen to him. And so Paul says this in response. So the situation with Elamis actively opposing the gospel and Simon are not apples to apples. They're not exactly the same, but certainly their profession is the same. The way that they're described is the same. They're both magicians And that doesn't have positive connotations to it. But here's something that they did have in common, I think. I think they both wanted to maintain their mesmerizing control over the people. 
Because we see that. We see it going on uh, in Elamis' case. He is trying to silence the gospel and maintain control that way. But for Simon, he's not trying to silence it. He's trying to tap into the power that the gospel brings in order to continue mesmerizing the people, to keep his hold over them. But as we see all throughout the book of Acts, all throughout maybe our own story, we see that when the life-changing message of the gospel comes to town, everything changes, right? Hopefully it's been like that in your life. Everything, the gospel changes everything. And that was the case for the city of Samaria. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. So remember from last week, the preaching of the gospel brings joy to the city. But now they're realizing they don't need that anymore. So they, they were once amazed. That another way to describe that is overwhelmed. They were once overwhelmed and amazed by this guy's magic, but now they're amazed and overwhelmed by the gospel. And they don't need that anymore. And this just goes to show that the gospel effectively destroys the strongholds of the enemy. And that happens in individual lives, and we see it happening in a large-scale version in Samaria here with Philip and with Peter and John. The gospel is just destroying those strongholds of, of being amazed by the wrong things, of, of occult practices, of magic, and all of that. The gospel is tearing them down. Now they finally saw this is real power. There's something to this. They recognized it for what it was. And guess who did too? Simon did. Simon saw it. He saw what real power was. Look at verse 13. It says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now this, this seems like great news, like a, a huge victory for the kingdom of God. The story isn't over though. Now, verses 14 through 17 are, are a bit of an aside. Uh, remember, it's, it's part of the story and we're not gonna separate it from it altogether, but it's sort of an aside that helps us understand the bigger picture here. Uh, this uh, section of verses explain that when the apostles, remember who had stayed back in Jerusalem, when they heard what was going on in Samaria and the people's response to the, to the gospel, they send Peter and John to go and to validate its legitimacy and to bring the Holy Spirit in by praying and laying on of hands. We'll talk more about this next week in particular. But this helps us understand what's going on with Simon, I think. As Philip preached and the people believed, he baptized them the way that he knew, in the name of Jesus Christ. And this, verse 13 says, included Simon. He, he was baptized. At this point, there's no indication that anything is wrong. But then we get to verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offers them money. And he says, verse 19, Give me, look at how many personal pronouns are here, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, 
you can tell mistakes were made here on Simon's part. He doesn't fully grasp what's happening. Uh, his Peter will point out his heart is not right. And he makes some big time mistakes. Apparently, it would seem, his ego and his own selfishness is what's driving him at this point. You can tell from the request that he makes his desire to give this kind of power was not to increase the name and fame of Jesus in town. It was so that I may lay hands on them. So that I might have this kind of a power. He had amazed people for a long time with his own tricks, with his own deceptions, possibly with real magic. But this was power on another level. And he knew it. He knew it when he saw it. And he knew he wanted it. Now, it was customary then, if you think about the ancient world and magic, and it's probably customary now as far as illusionists go, but it was customary for them to offer money to learn secrets of sleight of hand, of how to do things, of how to deceive people, of how to amaze people. And so that's what's going on here. Simon's like, I want to be able to do that. I have the money. Can we make a trade here? In essence, that's what he's saying. He's still so focused on himself. He doesn't see the problem in this request. But soon he will when Peter starts talking to him. Because Peter speaks up quickly in response and he, he, he rebukes him. There's no other, there's no better word for that in our language. He rebukes Simon pretty, pretty good. Uh, the, the natural question that comes up here and what I've wrestled with this week as I've studied is, is just the simple question. Was Simon a true believer? Was he genuinely saved or was this a case of false conversion? It's so interesting to me that Peter is the one who responds here because Peter himself was really sternly rebuked by Jesus. Wasn't he? In fact, Jesus even equated his actions at one point to those of Satan Remember, he said, get behind me, Satan. So in understanding this text, it's going to take some thoughtful Bible study. So I hope you came to church this morning ready to read and to learn and to dig in. Because this is what we're going to do in the time that we have left. So the question that goes along with, was this a case of false conversion or was he genuinely a believer, is another question. Is there a kind of belief that doesn't lead to salvation, that doesn't result in salvation? Because the text clearly says Simon believed and was baptized. And so that's the question I just want to think through together. I want to have a Bible study together on that this morning. Is there a kind of belief that doesn't result in salvation? I've got these listed in your notes. You can see them. The first one I I thought of was James chapter 2. Verse 19, James is clear there. He says that the demons believe and they, they shudder, you know, um, their belief is not unto salvation. They believe that God exists, that God is one, as he says there. So even demons believe, and that's the same word in the Greek, the believe word. Okay, so that's, that's one thing. Secondly, in John 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover before his death. And it says in John 2 there that many believed in his name when he saw the signs that he did. 
Okay, so you can right away see the correlation between that and Acts chapter 8 with Simon and the signs that he was seeing. But John chapter 2, 23 and 25 says Jesus did not trust himself to them. Talking about the people that believed in his name when they saw the signs in which he did. He didn't trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man for he himself knew what was in man, it says. So Jesus knew the hearts of the people and knew that their belief was focused on the signs which he did, not on himself. And so he says he did not entrust himself to them. Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. The third one in particular says, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 22, he explains that third soil like this. He says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Simon really had money on his mind in Acts 8, didn't he? He wanted to pay money so that he could then make more money by using this trick. Another The fourth one, Jesus' next parable in Matthew 13 is all about the parable of the wheat and the weeds. I've talked about this before in in our study in Acts. You guys remember that? Uh, An enemy comes in and sows wheat, weed seeds with the good wheat. And when it, when it grows and it starts to produce fruit, they realize, oh no, there are weeds in with the wheat. And they ask the master, should we rip the weeds out? And he says, no because you'll rip the good wheat out with it, let it go, and we'll harvest it and throw them into the fire in the end. Now, of course, this is Jesus explains this as an example of what it's going to be like on Judgment Day, but the principles that are there help us understand this. Jesus was saying that real wheat and real weeds, false wheat, imitators, grow together in the same field. And for a long time, look the same. John 6, many disciples turn back from walking with Jesus. And he says in verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it, would, who it was who would betray him. So many people followed Jesus for a while. But when things got hard and some of Jesus' words seemed confusing, they didn't continue with him because Jesus says they didn't believe. The sixth thing, after giving specific instructions to the church in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul opens 1 Corinthians 15 saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So it would seem in our Bible study this morning that there is a biblical category for what Paul refers to here as believing in vain. Now, more evidence is always helpful. So let's consider the object of Simon's faith, because this, I think, is telling as well. Consider the object of Simon's faith. Because when Jesus didn't entrust himself himself to the crowds in John chapter 2, it was because he knew their hearts 
And it was because he knew they only believed because of the, the miracles and the great signs that they saw him do. Remember, James also says that even demons believe, but not, it's, but it's not real belief. Now the word, there's a word here <clears throat> that Luke uses three times in verses 9 through 13 that I, I think is revealing. The word is amazed. And you see it in verse 9, verse 11, and verse 13. Now the King James translates this twice as bewitched and then once as wondered, but it's all the same word in the Greek. And it literally means astound, amaze, bewitch, or wonder. So all of those translations would be appropriate. We, we remember that Simon had amazed the people. He had bewitched them. He had made them wonder for a long time with his magic. It says that twice, verse 9 and 11. He had caused that amazement in the people. But then in verse 13, it switched around. Now, it's not the people who are amazed at Simon anymore. It says that Simon is amazed at the signs and the great miracles that were performed. When he saw those things, he was amazed. So the, the thing that Simon had been producing in the Samaritans for a long time, he was now experiencing himself when he saw the miracles and he saw the laying on of hands by the apostles. Is amazement at supernatural power, genuine faith in God. Now, based on what we've already seen from Jesus' response to people after his miracles, I don't think that we can say that genuine or that amazement at supernatural power is necessarily genuine belief. So was Simon simply amazed at the works of God or did he truly believe unto salvation? The, the evidence so far seems to point to the negative. But let's just consider a simple reading of the text here. What does verse 12 say? It says that the Samaritans believed and were baptized. Verse 13, same phrasing, same words, says that Simon believed and was baptized. And it even says that Simon continued with Philip. So those three things are actually pretty good markers for true faith, right? Belief, obedience in baptism, and then perseverance, continuing on. Those are usually three pretty good markers. In fact, <clears throat> Philip must have thought his belief was genuine because he baptized him. The reality is, we don't see the heart, though. Philip couldn't see the heart. When Peter rebukes him, look at verse 20. He says, may your silver perish with you. Hard statement. I don't think in saying that, though, he's, he's wishing that Simon perishes in that moment. I don't even think he's prophesying that that's going to happen necessarily. Because what does he do next? In verse 22, he tells him, he says, repent, repent of this wickedness. And then he says, pray that the intent of your heart may be forgiven. The wickedness that he's referring to, the intent of his heart, are these references to the sin of lacking genuine belief in the name of Jesus? Or are these references to his attempting to purchase Peter and John's power of laying on of hands and giving the spirit? Good question. Perish, that word in the Greek means 
uh, you can guess, to die. It means ruin. It means to waste. And it's used at least one time in the New Testament in reference to a saved person. In 1 Corinthians 8.11, when Paul is giving some instruction on uh, conscience and a matter in matters of uh, Christian freedom, he talks about a weaker brother and he uses the same word. He's talking about um, perish, uh, a Christian brother perishing for whom Jesus Christ himself died. So it's used about a Christian at least once in the New Testament. It could be, I think, that Peter is reacting to the destructive sins of jealousy and pride that he sees in Simon. Uh, these, if you remember, were some of the same big issues with Ananias and Sapphira. These were some of the same big issues with the religious Sanhedrin, pride, jealousy. Look at verse 21. Peter, in his rebuke, also says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. He says, You're, You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Is, is that this matter that Peter mentions here a reference to, to salvation? Or is it specifically to the issue of Simon's selfish attempt to be involved in the laying on of hands for the giving of the Spirit? It's unclear. I'll tell you something that is clear, though. Simon's heart is not right before God. That's crystal clear here. Peter is right on. Now that word right says your heart is not right before God. It has to do with like measuring. Uh, straightness. Your heart is not straight. Um, it is not level. It's not true, he says. Does this indicate then that Simon's heart is still completely crooked? Look at verse 23. Peter also, in his rebuke of Simon, says that he is in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Gall there just means bile or poison. So you could literally just say, Simon, you have, you're being poisoned by bitterness. You are wrapped up. You are bound by iniquity. And Peter concludes that. Verse 22, are these just references to the specific sin that Peter needs to repent of? There, is it in these things? Well, how does Simon respond? That's telling to some degree, right? Now, on one hand... He doesn't just ignore Peter and keep pressing him for the ability to give the spirit with the laying on of hands, right? He doesn't really bring that up again. So that's probably a positive thing. Another positive thing is he asks Peter, he says, pray for me that these things might not happen to me like you said. So are, are these the strugglings of a new Christian saying, you've revealed me for who I am. I need you to pray for me too. Or, on the other hand, what did Peter tell him to do? Peter said, you pray for forgiveness. But we don't have evidence that Simon did. He asked Peter to do it. So is this an indication that Simon doesn't truly believe enough for himself to pray? Or, like I said, is it just, is it just the pleadings of a man brought low? Right, like kind of like when the father of the man who had a, a demon possessed son comes to Jesus 
and, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Is it one of those kinds of situations? Could these issues with Simon be evidence of just the first strugglings of a new believer, one in particular who's been bound by witchcraft and selfishness for years? That was his way of life. It's all he knew. Even amongst mature Christians in the church, we don't always get it right, do we? We need to be corrected at times. I mean, I think of a handful of New Testament passages, Galatians 6, 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, Ephesians 4. All of these passages are instructions to Christians on how to righteously and rightly rebuke fellow Christians and call them back to truth. Is that what we see going on here with Simon and Peter? And it brings us back to that question that we asked towards the beginning, was Simon truly saved? And after my study this week and our time together this morning, I'll be honest, I don't know. I'm not sure. And in, in a way, it doesn't matter. Now, don't get me wrong. It absolutely matters for Simon, right? Whether he believed or not, it matters for him. But it's possible maybe even likely that we're going to live and then die and ourselves never know about the genuineness of his conversion or not. So in a way, it doesn't matter in that sense because God is king and he's the righteous judge. And here's the other thing. He knew if Simon's belief was real or not. And so I don't have to know. But here's the way that absolutely matters to us. Because God knew Simon's heart, right? God knows your heart too. Probably better than you do. You can profess faith. You can put a lot of money in the offering box. You can volunteer your time. You can read a bunch of Christian books. You can do a lot of good-looking stuff and still not genuinely, truly believe. We've seen a bunch of scripture already this morning where that was the case. You can add another one on there, Matthew chapter 7. It's one you're probably familiar with. Thinking about standing before God at the judgment throne and Jesus says that a person can prophesy in his name, a person can cast out demons in his name, a person can do a bunch of mighty works in his name and he still doesn't know them. And he says, depart from me. So knowing if Simon was truly saved or not doesn't really matter if you've not truly been saved. So I don't want us to think through all of these questions like we're standing in judgment over Simon because we're not. God is and has. But God's also standing in judgment over you and over me. And that's what we ought to be most concerned about this morning. Don't you think? Now I got to imagine... That if Simon is truly in glory, if he was truly genuinely saved and he's in heaven today, and if there's no opportunity to be disappointed in heaven, I would bet that he's disappointed that there are so many question marks surrounding his conversion. You know what I'm saying? Like if he genuinely was converted and if it was possible for there to be disappointment in heaven, I bet he'd be disappointed in that. And thinking about all of that, Let me pose this question for us that I want us to consider pretty deeply this morning. 
years from today, maybe we're gone. The Lord's still tarrying, our earth's still here, but we're gone. Years from today, will people have to question my salvation like this? You see what I'm asking? We're nitpicking these details of Simon's life to see it. Was, was there genuine conversion here or not? Will people have to do that about you and me? Will they have to look through the details of our lives, the nitty gritty, and say, man, I just can't really tell if this person loved Jesus or not. I can't tell if they were truly a Christian or not. Will my friends and loved ones have to do that? Or maybe, maybe there's an alternative solution here. Maybe we could just live our lives so that there's zero doubt that we know Jesus, that Jesus knows us, and that we're living for him. Maybe that's the best question. What if we just did that? What if we just lived so that there's no doubt? Let me share an illustration with you. It's not original to me, but it kind of helps us understand some of these things as we sort of wrap things together this morning. At, at, at every point in a child's physical development, there's a time when they just can't literally see very far in front of them. I don't know exactly when that is, probably between one and two, probably around the one-year age. So just imagine, if you will, that a dad's got his son on his knee, and they're sitting in the kitchen, and there's a window there, and a bird, a beautiful bird, flies over to a branch near the window. And the dad looks to his son. He says, son, look at the bird out the window. Well, the the son likely can't see all that far. And so probably isn't looking at the window. What is he looking at? He's looking at his dad's hand. He sees the hand and he's fixed on that. And he misses the bird. The dad could say, man, look at the beautiful feathers and the wonderful pattern that's on this bird. Isn't that neat, son? But the son doesn't see the bird. The son is stuck on the hand. He can't see past it. The bird flies off. The son never saw it. He saw the sign of his father pointing, but he never saw the bird. Now, this might be a good illustration of Simon. But I think it could also be a good description of many of us too. See, Christians, our job is we point to someone, right? Philip, Peter, all of these guys who preach in the book of Acts in the New Testament, preachers today, our job is not to be the hand, or it's to be the hand that points to the bird. Are you with me? Because it's not about us. Simon couldn't see past the hand. He couldn't see past the signs. He couldn't be, see past the wonders to what they were pointing to. Because we've already said, the signs and wonders, the healings and the casting out of demons, that wasn't the point. That's not the end goal. Those were the signposts that point to the end, which is salvation in Christ alone. So some people... Even though Christians are continuing to point to the glory of God, the beauty of the Savior, like the dad was pointing to the bird, some people just don't want to see past the signs that point to him. And so they become fixated on the stuff he gives or the promise of freedom. There are some who get real excited about the signs, about wonders. They might even try to copy those signs themselves, but they never really see what those signs are pointing to. 
Now, Simon's fate is sealed. So in that sense, it doesn't matter either. His fate is sealed. So I think what God intends for us in Acts chapter 8 is again, less about Simon and less about us sitting in judgment over him, determining whether he's saved or not. But I think it's more about a warning for you and for me. What is the object of your faith? It can't be the, the amazing things that are done in the name of Christ. It can't be the feeling that you get when you hear Christians sing together or you listen to a pastor's convicting sermon. It can't be the sense of community that you get in the church. Now, those things are great, but they are all hands that point to something greater. Those things all point to the giver of those things, to Jesus himself. Parents, we understand this kind of principle. When we give our kids presents, we want them to enjoy the present, but we want that to deepen love between us and them. We don't want them to love the hot wheel. We want them to love us. But we give them good gifts so that they do, so that it aids in that love because we just love them. God doesn't give good gifts and signs and wonders so that we love the signs. He gives us those things so that we love the Savior. So if the object of our faith is anything other than Jesus Christ, we have believed in vain. And that's not what Peter wanted for Simon. That's not what I would want for you. So what do we do then? If the Lord is, as we said this morning, laying us out, laying us bare, convicting our hearts of this, that maybe our belief has not been true belief, what do we do? Now there's a good question to ask. There's a good question. The Ethiopian servant will ask uh, Philip that kind of a question we talk about that in just a couple of weeks, but that's a good question to ask. And I think the answer has already been given to us in the text. Look back at verse 22. What does Peter say? After his rebuke, he says to do this. He says, repent, therefore, of your wickedness and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven to you. So Peter says, repent and pray for forgiveness See, Simon was given a chance to be made right with God. And friends, you've been given a chance to be made right with God today. Hearing the joy and the blessing and the reconciliation of the gospel. Peter's message to you through the Spirit is a message of grace. The doors are open. Christ has come. He has made a way. But be sure... The Spirit isn't for sale. You can't buy the gift of God. Spiritual gifts are not to be bought. They can't be. God gives those to those in His church according to His perfect will. And He gives them for the purpose of building up the church and for the purpose of bringing the gospel to the lost. So if you evaluate your life this morning and you say, Man, I don't know if my heart is right before God. I may be where Simon was. And I'm feeling convicted this morning. Here's my encouragement to you. Don't forget verse 22. Repent, believe, pray.
pray for forgiveness. But in doing those things, you've got to set aside your pride. You've got to recognize that this life isn't all about you. Set aside your pride, repent, and pray for forgiveness and pray for faith. And the beautiful message of the gospel is that if the object of your faith is Jesus, and this is the desire of your heart, he will save you. He would save Simon. And he will you too. Let's pray. Lord, we're concerned about the hearts here who are listening today. But we can learn from Simon. We can learn what not to do. We can learn what to do. And this morning we've learned, Lord, that this, this message is, is not to be used for selfish means. It is a gift that you freely give. Where we've also seen that there is a kind of belief that does not result in salvation. And it's because we get fixated on the hand and we miss the bird. We get fixated on the things of this life, worldliness, maybe signs and wonders, maybe a feeling, but we miss the Savior. And we don't want that. Lord, I don't want that for those listening this morning. And so I pray that real belief, that real repentance would come as a result of your spirit moving in our hearts today. And Lord, that's only a work that you do. I don't say the right words as a pastor to manipulate that to happen. We can't give enough in the offering plate for you to do that for us. Lord, this is a gift that you give to those who believe. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help our unbelief this morning that we might turn to you as the object and finisher and author of our faith and that we might have joy in the gospel because of it in a relationship with you. Bring that about, Lord. Convict hearts and lead them to the cross where they find forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.